Welcome to Bruin One Ear, Not the Other. I'm Pranav, and today with Nakin, our guest is Karen Alstutter, Swedish ambassador to the United States. We had an opportunity to speak with the ambassador on February 13th. Her wealth of knowledge about Sweden provided a lot of historical and cultural context to help explain Sweden's proactive contributions in fighting global warming and prominent position in the tech industry. We had a little bit of challenge getting the ambassador onto our call because of firewall issues, and this shortened our episode just a little. Unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to ask her about the ASAP Rocky case, but we did walk through some of the major bodies of her work, such as trade, defense, and gender equality. So without further ado, here is our interview with Karen. Hi, Karen. Thank you for joining us on Bruin One Year and Out the Other. Thank you. Because this is a UCLA-themed podcast, one of the things we wanted to do was ask one of the questions that current applicants have to answer as part of the application. All right. Okay. See if I get in. (laughs) As always, we think it serves as a great introduction for our listeners. Okay. The prompt is, describe an example of your leadership experience in which you have positively influenced others, helped resolve disputes, or contributed to group efforts over time. Oh, wow, that's a huge question. In a way, uh, it's what I do at my job all the time. Uh, first of all, I'm you know, a manager of a largely, largely big outfit in comparison. For being Swedish embassy, this is a big embassy. We're 55 people. If this was a US embassy, it would probably not even open. Uh, you know, um, but uh, so as a manager, I help out uh, you know, resolving conflicts among coworkers uh, all the time. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, then I have uh, helped out to, to renegotiate a fighter jet deal between Sweden and Hungary. Uh, and we were quite threatened by the Americans who wanted to move in and take that market back uh, from us. We Sweden produces fighter jets that compete with the F-35s and the F-18s. And I managed uh, to secure that deal together with my colleagues. Very proud of that. So what was the third one? It was like, uh, would, would I get in with that, you think? But yeah, I, I definitely <laughs> get in. Podcast isn't exclusive to Spotify. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and just kind of taking it from there, kind of why do you believe that Sweden is a tech hub? You guys have Spotify, Klarna. Yeah. It's a rather long story, or it goes back quite a long time in history. Sweden was really poor uh, in the 19th century. That's actually why one-fourth of our population left for the United States. Uh, and so uh, in the late 1800s, uh, we had some quite innovative firms. Ericsson is one of them. And you know, they're part of the big discussion on 5G right now. Uh, We have SKF, we have uh, Volvo, you know, when the cars came and so on. So we have been a country of engineers for so long, for basically 150 years. And that has really shaped uh, our way of thinking. And I think it's always like when you have some successful people that inspires others. And also we have a very egalitarian um, education system. Universities for free in, in Sweden. Uh, and the whole system with our welfare system is it's basically the same as idea as the United States. Through hard work, you should be able to achieve whatever your potential is, no matter what your background is, 
who your family is, uh, your religion, or whatever. If you work hard, you should succeed. So our system is actually uh, has the same goal, but it's based on a welfare system, which means that if you come from a poor family, university is for free. Uh, if you um, you know have kids, uh, we have daycare, so a lot of women work. Everyone can work and still you know have a family and so on. So this has all built up over time that people uh, can be allowed to fail because there's a welfare system that catches them if they fail. Uh, and I mean you have similar risk. I mean Americans are also risk takers. So through this, we have created a very innovative society. Uh, so, you know, Stockholm has as many unicorns as Silicon Valley, Valley per capita. And Spotify is, of course, one of them. And you have Klarna, the payment system, and uh, other, others as well. So we have just been, um, maybe because we live where we live, it's really cold. <laughs> you have to come up with good inventions to be able to stay there. <laughs> and someone also said, we're so innovative because it's so dark and boring in the winters. <laughs> so you have to come up with something good to entertain yourself. So one of the things that we wanted to talk about was FICA, workplace culture. Uh, it's different from U.S. and China, yet you guys still have all these successful tech startups and unicorns. That's why we have those successful companies. <laughs> so for well, our we are a very non-hierarchical society. Of course, the okay. boss is always the boss, but still it's a quite non-hierarchical society. And we also have a very, very strong coffee culture. I think it's Sweden and Finland together are like the biggest coffee drinkers per capita in the world. Um, so that's really big a part of who we are. So having a coffee break at work uh, is uh, something that's, first of all, very nice uh, and uh, even if we're all supposed to work eight hours a day, I don't think we're all super efficient those eight hours. We're probably efficient like three hours or something. And I think that goes across the globe. Um, so having a break where you sit down and mix with your colleagues. So usually, I mean, here at the embassy every Friday, uh, we have that at 10 o'clock. And then you mix, you know, you sit next to a colleague who you usually don't sit next to or something. So you talk about things. And that's how you, first of all, create a trust in the organization because you get to know the others. Uh, plus, usually that's when good ideas happen. And you know, it's not like our only good ideas happen between eight and five. They usually happen at other times when you have, and also, you know, we have long vacations, we have five weeks. And that doesn't mean that we are less productive. On the contrary, we are actually a very productive country. So I think it is because it creates trust, it creates, uh, it's fun and, uh, also, I think it's really important to have a workplace where people want to come. You know, you spend eight hours a day there. So, of course, you must like to come there. So, uh, FICA is really, um, I mean, for us, we have a roster. Uh, everyone takes uh, one week where you bring in the coffee, like the sweets, the cinnamon bombs or whatever um, on that Friday. But usually, actually, the other days at 10 or at 3, uh, those who feel like it can, you know, come to our cafeteria, have a coffee, chit-chat for 10-15 minutes, and then you go back to your office again. So it's actually something that really creates, because it's not like those 15 minutes are lost job-wise. They will probably sit and do some, I mean, we all sit and do something else then. Uh, so it actually is very good for the work environment. And then I think just, you mentioned kind of the culture, just grown up, uh, what was like the typical life? Any major events or, or holidays, foods, festivals that 
Yeah, we, uh, of course, Christmas is huge in my country. Uh, we celebrate it on the 24th. Uh, soon coming up is, uh, you know, we before we came became Protestant, we were Catholic, so fasting uh, was big. So we have a special kind of sweet roll. Uh, it's a um, kind of bun with marzipan and whipped cream that we eat in February. And then for Easter, we eat egg and herring. Uh, for midsummer, mid of June, we still eat herring, but then new potatoes. Okay. <laughs> and of course, vodka comes along yeah. uh, with all of them. So. All our traditional uh, Christmas, Easter, and uh, Midsummer, all about herring. Okay. Lots of herring. And that's you know, Swedish uh, fish is based on that, right? Sorry? The, the candy Swedish fish. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. And um, uh, we, uh, we are huge candy eaters. Uh, so if you go to a Swedish supermarket, or if you visit Ikea for that matter, uh -huh. usually you have a big wall of candy where, candy where you can pick yourselves. Yeah. Um, but in Swedish grocery stores, those are like double the size of the one at Ikea. Yeah. And, and I've heard there's rumors of a Swedish candy wall in the embassy. We had one for a while because I got interviewed by Washington Post and they asked me what I missed about being not, you know, not being home. And then I started yeah. talking about the, the candy and the journalist was like, oh, what's the texture? What does it taste like? And so, so I described it. And then we got a candy wall here. And then I actually went to Washington Post with a huge bowl of candy. Okay, that's that's the only kind of wall that I support. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great wall, though. That is a great wall. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I like that a lot. Talked a little bit about education, and we want to ask a little bit about yours. So you mm -hmm. attended Lund University for undergrad, and yes. for for our mostly American listeners, uh, I just wanted to share that it's consistently ranked among the world's top 100 universities. Mm. So wondering kind of what made you to decide to attend there and if you could tell us a little bit about your studies and did you know what you wanted to do was ambassador on your career path in undergrad? No, uh, it was never anything I even dreamt about or thought about. Uh, I had friends who studied political science and so on and they talked about a diplomatic career. But my major uh, was psychology, uh, economics, and Russian. Uh, in a way, a bit by accident, all of it. Uh, there was no like grand scheme. But you know, I started university in 1988, and then the Soviet Union still existed. Uh, and uh, I had started working as a tour guide in Russia without having, then you didn't have to know the language, but I, I really fell in love with the country and went there to study. So in 1992, after us, I had been at UCLA, uh, 92, 93, I was at UCLA. Uh, Sweden had a huge economic crisis at the time. So we actually didn't have it. There were no jobs, uh, but the government still advertised for the diplomatic training program. And me and my friend, we thought, you know, we'll, we just have to apply for the jobs there are. <laughs> so um, I, I applied. Uh, I never, ever thought I would get accepted because I never had thought about it. I have this... I'm not a political scientist, I'm not a law student and so on, which is what most are. But given that I had Russian and also that I had this education that was different and I had lived abroad and, and so on, uh, they got really interested in me and took me in. And when it comes to the choice of Lund, you know, that's the biggest university in the south of Sweden. Uh, so I'm, I come from the town on the west coast in Sweden and this was the closest, biggest university. So we kind of all naturally went there as friends. And so one thing you, you kind of talked about a little bit there is 
that higher education in Sweden is, is free for those that can't afford it and just want to contrast that. No, it's free that for everyone. Oh, it's free for everyone. Yes. And so just want to contrast that a little bit with what it is in, in the United States where tuition has been rising, the average cost of tuition for, for in-state, for public universities can be $10,000 up to 22,000 and private universities are even more. So yeah. there's a huge difference there. Mm -hmm. And what we have, is, it works like this in Sweden. So university, the education is for free, but to sustain yourself, you know, to have a place to live and eat and books and all that, usually we take student loans. Uh, they are, of course, much less than the student loans are here because the, the fee to the universities were free. So uh, usually you have maybe a student loan of equivalent of twenty to $30,000 uh, for your whole undergraduate program. And then that is actually, it's a government loan you get. So that is then deducted for, uh, for your, from your income uh, until it's paid off. And so usually you pay like three or four percent of your yearly income uh, to pay off the debt. Okay, so almost like an income sharing agreement. Yes, in a way it is. So I just because I had for the time, I mean, it's a long time now since I was at university. And because I went to the United States, I could take an extra loan because it was, I mean, the tuition was paid for, but it was much more expensive to live there. So I, when I graduated, I had a loan of like 30,000, I mean, today's money, about $30,000. But at the time, you know, we're so used to now that interest rates are basically nothing. But at that time, interest rates were like 10 or 8%. And as I paid off with 4% of my yearly income, it wasn't until I earned double the amount of my loan that it actually sank, you know, went down before it used to just increase and increase and increase. But I just looked at it as if I have an education, I would most likely have a more fun job and I will earn more. So I just saw it as part of the you know, deal. Sure. So that's why. Uh, so you decided to continue your uh, studies and you come to UCLA Anderson. Mm -hmm. Tell us um, kind of what made you decide to go to the US for grad school and specifically UCLA Anderson um, and kind of what was your experience here? Well, I had already been uh, an exchange student in the United States in high school. I was in the southern part of, um, of New Jersey, outside Atlantic City, for like senior year in high school. So I really knew that I liked, uh, liked the United States. I had traveled here a bit as a tourist as well and so on. And then my university, Lund University, actually has an exchange program with the Universities of California, with the UC system. So I applied. I think we had like 15 scholarships or something like that. Uh, again, didn't think I would get it, but I was the only one from my psychological uh, or faculty of psychology that applied. If I had applied from our um, of our uh, faculty for political science, you know, the competition was much more stiff. <laughs> so, but I was the only one. Uh, so um, I got the scholarship and I really wanted to go to Los Angeles because I thought that would be uh, the utmost cool, cool experience, of course, which it was living in Westwood. And then um, I got the scholarship to go on grad level. Uh, you could get a scholarship to go for the full grad program, but I got for one year. Um, and that's how I chose Anderson. So what were some of the cool things you did in Westwood? Oh, that was so cool. You know, we, uh, first of all, it was everything you could do uh, on campus uh, and at Anderson at the school. Uh, I mean, there were lots of foreign students there. There were a lot of parties all the time, really fun. 
uh, one of my classmates, he actually lives here in Washington uh, now, Prashan Kotari, uh, who was a graduate of, of, uh, of Anderson. And then um, living in Westwood, of course, everything you could do there. And uh, I didn't have a car, but I had friends who had cars. So of course, we went down to Venice, hanging out there. We went to Las Vegas a couple of times. I mean, there's so much to do, uh, really. And, but it was, I mean, a lot of, most of the time I had to study because it was quite tough. Um, but I really, I mean, I really, what I really appreciated with the studies was that, you know, in comparison to Sweden, and I don't know what it's like now, but it was fairly for small classes. And you also got graded on every class by class participation. So everyone had studied, everyone was super engaged in the discussions. And also, as it was a business school, it's a business school. Most people had worked a couple of years in between, which also had, they had real life experience. So everything was great. So tell us a little bit about what you brought maybe to Anderson. You worked in Russia as a tourist guide. And um, now you're at Anderson. You're taking some of these classes. How are those classes now applicable to your current work? Well, um, my being a diplomat is really something you learn by experience it's nothing something you can study to be actually it's one of those jobs but of course having studied business administration and having studied most of my colleagues have not studied business administration so i actually think that's very good when you look at uh, of course we we totally operate on taxpayers you know on funding from the government but it's someone's money so i'm I think I through my business study really learned to think about, uh, you know, cost efficiency, how do we get most out of our money and so on, because bureaucracy sometimes have a ten tendency to just think, oh, we get this money and then not being so strategic about spending them. So I think that I really learned that through business school. And then I also studied um, classes there, which was related to Eastern European, Eastern Europe. And, you know, this was just after the fall of the Soviet Union. So I remember I had a fantastic class with a professor from Poland at the business school talking about the transition, economic transition and so on. So of course that was very worthwhile for me because my first posting as a diplomat, as a young diplomat was in Moscow. And I think also his letter of recommendation really you know, strengthened my case to get accepted into the, to our diplomatic training program. So one of the things we want to ask about is, so you currently service the ambassador uh, to the United States from Sweden. Yes. And we wanted to know, how does, how does one get a post? How does Sweden choose its ambassadors to, to foreign countries? Mm -hmm. Well, so uh, we have a career service, uh, career diplomatic service, just like the United States does. But then uh, the difference between us and you is that you also uh, appoint quite a few ambassadors um, that are non-career, uh, which get appointed because they have maybe supported a president in his campaign or her campaign or, you know, things like that. But those are, I think many Americans think that you have many more of those than you actually do, because they are usually in Europe, in places that are not, uh, I mean, also very interesting, but maybe not as physically challenging or security-wise and so on. I don't think, for instance, you have a career, I'm not sure, but I don't think you have a career or a non-career person like in Pakistan or some of those places. So uh, 
for us, it's uh, we we you know the jobs are posted uh, in our service every year, and um, then you apply, and then if you get selected to that job, you get it the next year. Uh, but this, um, when I got this job, um, I think one I, I was actually asked if I wanted to if I was interested, and then they asked me to apply for the job, and of course they could have given it to someone else if there was someone better applying, but. I'm one of the few people in our uh, service that has both done uh, security policy, um, Russia. I worked at our delegation to NATO. We, we have one even if we are not a member of NATO. So I worked there. Uh, I've been ambassador before, but I've also done trade. So I was the highest like, re uh, ranked civil servant in our system for trade policy. So I'm one of the few that has done Russia, security policy and trade. And right now, um, this is really, you know, uh, both trade and security policy is very high on the agenda in Washington. So I'm extremely happy that I have both the combination. So I think that's why I got the job. So you've previously said that trade and defense are your two priorities. Yes. Um, so for Sweden, what does the future look like in these two verticals? And kind of who are your primary trade partners and, and greatest threats maybe? Mm -hmm. So when it comes to trade, uh, as we initially talked about, Sweden is, is a very innovative country, but we're also a fairly small country. So 45% of our GDP comes from trade with others. I think in the United States, it's like 12 or 15%. I mean, you're basically a continent with your large population. So, so that's not strange, but a small country like mine, you know, we are the 15th largest investor in the United States. And when it comes to population, we're like number 90 in the world. So you really realize by that comparison that we are a huge uh, industrial and uh, service and technology country. And the United States is our fourth largest trading partner. The biggest one is actually Norway <laughs> because it's our neighbor. <laughs> and um, then Germany, of course, and, and, and so on. But the uh, United States is our fourth largest one. So. Uh, we are very worried when we hear um, uh, political uh, tendencies for protectionism, which we think is devastating. We are true believers in free trade because the way economy is built up today, you know, it's global value chains. If you take a Volvo car, an XC90, for instance, maybe it has 10,000 parts from like 70 different countries. We could never produce that in Sweden. It would, no one could buy it. You know, and that's the way the world operates today. We don't believe you can turn that back. Uh, so, so that's why I uh, really um, talk a lot to your administration about the value of free trade. Uh, walk the halls of Congress, talking to both uh, far right members of Congress and far left members of Congress, because they are they are the ones who are most hesitant on trade. And so, so that that's basically existential for us. And then when it comes to security, um, as I said earlier, Sweden is not a member of NATO, but you, if you look at the map, you can see our location. And we have a very big neighbor, uh, Russia. And Russia, a couple of years ago, five, six years ago, annexed uh, part of another country, uh, Crimea of Ukraine, uh, have attacked Georgia uh, in 2008, um, cyber attack on Estonia. No, I mean, Georgia, Georgia was 2000. So, you know, we live in a, an area where we have seen military aggression. Uh, it's very close to us. So for that reason, we have to, even though we don't want to be a member of NATO, we still uh, cooperate very strongly with others for our security. So we have a very deep 
relationship with Finland, that's also not a member of NATO, and our uh, bilateral relationship with the United States is key for us. Uh, I talked earlier about us being, you know, engineers. We also have a huge defense sector. So we build our own fighter jets. We build our own submarines. Uh, we have a huge uh, arsenal of uh, weaponry. So, for instance, um, the United States has just bought uh, tanks and uh, grenade launchers, launchers from Sweden. So, um, and that comes out of the Cold War, because as we were not the member of NATO, we were balancing between the Warsaw Pact and NATO. And to make our independence believable, we also had to build our own or create our own defense industrial complex. Because then, you know, it wasn't seen like we bought things from the one or the other. So that's why we have such a large defense industry. So to keep that uh, defense relationship alive, to deepen it and so on is, is key for us. So that's why those, those two, trade and, and defense are like my most important areas of cooperation. And the defense relationship is great. Uh, it's really working fantastically well. And uh, your troops, uh, US troops comes to exercise in Europe or in Sweden all the time. And, you know, we uh, do a lot of in innovative work together on the defense industrial complex and so on. So currently the United States doesn't have diplomatic relations with North Korea, but mm -hmm. a lot of the channels go through Sweden in order to, to reach North Korea. Is that something that your team works on as well? Yeah, so we are, uh, Sweden is what you call a protective power of, Nor of the United States in North Korea. Like you said, you don't have an embassy there. And what this means is uh, first and foremost consular affairs. So if Americans uh, are in trouble in, in North Korea, we help out. And you've had some tragic cases lately uh, and um, others who we managed to, to get free and released. And um, so that's very important for us. So right now I have two Swedish colleagues who are actually stuck in Pyongyang because of the coronavirus. There is, um, they are in isolation. They can't get out. There are no flights out of Pyongyang right now. So that's quite serious actually. And uh, they are true heroes <laughs> being there at this time, I believe. Uh, so uh, that's something where we also uh, served as a kind of platform for dialogue between the United States and North Korea. Now that uh, President Trump has been trying to advance the negotiations uh, between the United States and North Korea. So we've been kind of guarantee of good offices um, between because the North Koreans put fairly big trust in us and so does our American friends. Um, I think kind of referring to the global scare in coronavirus, you have multiple countries involved. Mm -hmm. How do you kind of step away from the noise and, and kind of where do you put your focus when there's an issue that's captivating the globe like this? Well, I think, of course, it is scary with these pandemics uh, and so on. I was here last time when we had, um, was it SARS 10 years ago? Yes. And at that time, I think we reacted more with panic. Uh, I mean, everyone was looking for flu shots and so on. That's not the debate right now. Uh, and I think our countries have also been better at handling the cases we have. We have one case in Sweden a person who flew in from, from Wuhan. 
And she was very, she knew exactly what to do. You know, she was at home. She didn't go out. Her friends brought her food at her doorstep. She called the hospital. They got her into isolation and she's doing fine. Um, so, uh, and here it seems to be working very well as well with the cases. I think you have like 18 cases now or something like that. But of course, this is just the beginning. We, you know, it takes about a year for such, as I've learned, for such a virus to, to kind of play out. So, of course, we don't know what this will be, but I think it's important that we all take the precautions that we can. Like, if you sneeze, sneeze into your, what do you call it, arm, <laughs> uh, and, um, and uh, wash hands often, and, and so on. But uh, so far, at least in, I think, our countries, no need to panic. It's worse, of course, in China. So, so staying on that topic of uh, kind of global scale events, one of the things we wanted to talk a little bit about is climate change. Mm -hmm. And Sweden currently has a 2045 goal to be net zero in, in carbon emission. Yes. And so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what Sweden is doing to help combat mm -hmm. climate change. We've been working on this for a long time, actually. It was already in 1991 that we introduced a carbon tax. Uh, so it started out from a very low level. I think it was 25, equivalent of $25 per ton emissions. And now it's up to $125 or something like that per ton. So it was a gradual introduction of carbon tax. And this policy and also technological advancement, I mean, this of course led to technological advancement because the companies, they didn't want to pay that tax. So they wanted, they became innovative so that they reduced their emissions. So since 1991, we have cut our emissions by something between 25 and 30%. At the same time, we've grown our economy by 78%. So those who say that, you know, you can't do those climate, climate change innovative uh, measures to take those because that would hurt your economy. No, it's not true. It actually drives innovation. So uh, the government just took on that top policy, as you said, and actually there's unity in our parliament. So across the board, political spectrum, everyone is united in that this is something we will do. So this has led to that uh, a lot of Swedish business sectors have taken it upon themselves to cut emissions. So for instance, the cement industry uh, has uh, now adopted a, sorry, a roadmap on how they will uh, reduce their uh, carbon footprint. And I think most of us, we just talk about the airplanes, but the cement industry is huge when it comes to emissions. So the cement industry, we have a company called SSAB, one, um, a huge steel producer, global one. They have two big plants in the US. They have just come up with a method of making carbon-free uh, steel that is produced carbon-free. And uh, it's called hybrid. Uh, they will launch that in 2025. And this will, of course, be great for like car industry and so on, who want to cut their emissions. And if you can then, you know, build the cars on steel that is uh, carbon free, that's great. So uh, there are lots of, of things being done and, and huge awareness, actually. We're also putting emphasis on uh, um, our train and rail system. Right now, it's hard to travel in your, to Europe. You know, Sweden is quite far up and Stockholm is far up and so on. Uh, there, there hasn't been any night trains that you could go out now. You can take the night train down to Copenhagen in northern Germany, and then you're in the rest of Europe, you know, in quite no time. So there are lots of incentives like that. There's also been incentives to buy uh, cars that use less uh, fuel and, uh, and so on. Still, I think one of our problems is that electrical cars are still 
quite expensive, so it's not for everyone uh, yet, but I'm sure we will get there. Uh, so uh, we take this very seriously and there's huge support in the Swedish public. Plastic bags, we pay about um, 75 cents for a plastic bag. And here you pay five and you use double bags. Stop <laughs> it. <laughs> I, I got the cloth bag, so. Uh, hopefully I'm not contributing to that issue. Mm. You mentioned the uh, support from the Swedish public. Yeah. Uh, the time person of the year this year was Greta Thunberg. Mm -hmm. How has Sweden allowed for the growth of activists like her? Um, and why do you think your population uh, really cares about this issue? Well, you know, it's been for a long, and we also have um, a very special situation in, in Sweden. We have something called the right of public access. So this means that even if a forest is private, uh, you and I can walk through it. We can pick berries and mushrooms and everything on that in that forest, even though it belongs to someone else. Of course, we can't chop down trees or anything like that, but we can, you know, walk through it. We can camp in it as long as we are not visible from the owner's house. Um, you can't, of course, cross uh, land where someone is cultivating something like wheat or whatever, but for the rest of it, you can walk, you're allowed to walk all over the country. So we have been brought up with that nature is really everyone's uh, and we are quite outdoorsy people. So, and also you can fish in all lakes if you just get a fishing license and things like that. A lot of people are hunters and there are 400,000 moose roaming, roaming around our forests. Uh, and we're the size of, well, Sweden is the size of California, but two thirds of the country is forest with uh, almost half a million moose. Anyway, so we brought up with that. And when I was a kid in, in the 70s, everywhere there were stickers, you know, keep Sweden clean. So already back then, uh, we had a big movement of keeping our nature clean. And I think it is because we really perceive nature as belonging to everyone. And then everyone, of course, becomes responsible in a way. So it's not acceptable. I mean, of course, or accepted. Uh, so um, I think this is why there is such big support for this. And also, uh, I think rare times in every uh, country that pops up people who just are very strong voices for, for different things. It could be a politician or it could be a young activist. And I think what Greta Thunberg shows is that, I mean, most big changes, if you think back, 1968, it was the youth. Usually youth are much more active than, uh, I mean, I'm much older than you guys, but when you're in your 50s, you become lazy and you're not that as concerned anymore. And of course, it's youth that, you know, get really upset and change. And, and Greta has a fantastic voice and clarity. So through her uh, very strong message, I think she has really got young people going all over the world. And that's amazing. And I think that generation, they will not accept that we don't try to change. And which, which they shouldn't, of course, we must change. So now let's pivot from these worldwide issues um, and focus on Sweden and, and something a little bit more pleasing to talk about. Sweden has ranked highly in the World Happiness Report, seventh as of 2019, and you guys are the top three most general equal countries in the world. Can you tell us more about why you think Sweden ranks so highly? Well, I think it is because in a way, I mean, of course, we are an economically very strong country. So in comparison to others, our living standard for most people is very, very high. I mean, of course, people are complaining in Sweden too. I'm not saying that everything is perfect, 
by any means, but in comparison to so many other countries and places, most people have a very good life, uh, really. And, you know, also because of our welfare system, and, you know, the five Nordic countries are basically top on the happiness uh, index. I don't know if it was Denmark or Finland who was highest this year, but, you know, I think this, that we have this welfare system that makes people feel secure. It doesn't mean that people become lazy. I think that's a misconception that you have here in the United States, that if you have a welfare system like ours, people will not work and so on. No, that's not the case. We actually have much higher employment rates than you have in the United States. I think it's 85% in Sweden of people who work that work. Uh, for women, it's 80%. And I think in the United States, it's around 70% or 65 even. So employment rate is very high. Of course, given our tax system, you, we can't afford that if you're in, uh, living in a two-person relationship, it's very uh, difficult for one, that one per person doesn't work. You need the two incomes. But then again, through our tax system, we get this, you know, this free school, really good daycare for our kids, elderly care, that's fine. For instance, my father, he's 90 years old. He has home care. So they have, he has people who come six times a day and takes care of him. Of course, that makes them, my mom and my dad, feel very secure. They don't have to worry. Uh, of course, they worry about things, but they don't have to worry about, you know, how they are going to make ends meet. Uh, they don't have big uh, retirements, but uh, also they have the, the help. So my mother doesn't have to do everything for my father. And, you know, um, I think this creates a kind of, I mean, you become, you feel safe. And I feel, if you feel safe, and I'm not talking about safe from military threats, but we are also safe, fairly safe in that regard. If you feel safe and secure in your daily life and you don't have to worry about, will I get food or will I do this and that? That creates a kind of happy feeling, <laughs> I guess. But the happiness index actually that doesn't measure how fun people have. <laughs> it measures more like how kind of lifestyle uh, we all have and which makes us happy, I guess. For sure. Um, and so our, our last couple of questions that we like to ask all of our guests what is your favorite UCLA memory and who is your favorite UCLA Bruin? Oh, my favorite UCLA moment. There were so many. And one of my daily favorite moments, which is not possible anymore, is the cafeteria that was next to Anderson where they had the best sandwich. I always had rye bread and it was mushrooms and it was... Uh, alfalfa sprout and a great dressing and I visited a couple of years ago it doesn't exist anymore very tragic those were great days no and uh, and all the parties of course it was so fun uh, really really fun I mean there was kind of a rooftop terrace right at Anderson yes yeah where they were by that was really fun uh, and then mm, Bruin actually have haven't really kept track I'm really sorry I guess it's all the classmates I had then. They're all my favorites. Yeah, I was going to say, you can mention the classmate that uh, is also in Washington, D.C. Yeah, Prashant. But uh, before we let you go, um, Karen, if you'd want to give us a 30-second plug for uh, something going on in Sweden, important work that your embassy is doing, or, or something else going on in your life that you'd just like to, to share about. 
Well, right now, you know, uh, we, we have focused, you touched upon it, on uh, feminism and gender equality. For us, that's extremely important. And uh, actually, we find uh, a lot of people are very interested here in the United States. Uh, so how do you govern uh, in a gender equal way? Uh, and it's everything, if you think about it, if you are into um, traffic and infrastructure, how do you light our walkways so that people feel safe? on those that's one that's like feministic policy people don't think about it but it is and then we also have something we call drive for democracy um because we feel that um we uh, our democracies are challenged in a way and how do we how, how do we address free media um and uh, and you know we all talk about cyber attacks on our election systems and so on so those two are really important things that we are working very much on right Awesome. Thanks again. Thank well, you thank so you much. guys. Thanks. Yeah. Take care. Thanks again to Karen for joining us on the podcast. And hopefully everything we talked about today didn't go brewing one ear and out the other. Please make sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you enjoyed learning more about cool Bruins.